Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 1st, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I am Mike Pesca, and I am obsessed with British politics. Could you tell? Have you listened to the show? I think I know why. In Britain, everything happens so quick. Crazy stuff. Now, crazy stuff happens in the U.S., right? Trump hears a plane, says it's the Mexicans attacking. Trump takes money donated to his charity to buy a Tim Tebow autographed football helmet. But in the U.S., the campaign lasts so long and the spin infrastructure is so elaborate, it all gets flattened and sanitized. But oh, there in England, there's a contested referendum. There's a vote that's won. There's a back that's knifed. There's an email that's leaked. There's a staff that's seconded. I am way too into all things British. I awake, I immediately track the FTSE 100. Now, yesterday I spoke a little bit about the FTSE 100, how it's recovered quite nicely since the Brexit vote. But I should have also pointed out that the FTSE 100 is not maybe as great a status accounting tool as the FTSE 250. The FTSE 250, it's like two and a half times better than the FTSE 100. And I'll explain why. I'll also say that the FTSE 250 has been doing terribly since the Brexit, one of the worst indices in the world. Anyway, the FTSE 100, it's pretty undiverse. It's got a lot of English companies, big ones, that are helped by a weak pound. The FTSE 250, what's what's called mid caps, but they're more spread out. They're stocks reflecting economic conditions in Britain a little bit better. Let me give you an analogy. The FTSE 250 is like Glastonbury. It's got Beck and LCD sound system and Muse and Adele and Coldplay, but like hundreds of acts, a huge festival. And if you listen to all the music that's going on there, get a pretty good idea about music. But the FTSE 100, that may be more like the Download Festival. Have you heard of the Download Festival? Well, the big bands headlining that one this year are Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath. Not exactly diverse. I mean, over there on the Dogtooth stage, they've got raining days, wearing scars, and scattering ashes. Three bands playing in a row. They've also got a band named Cadaver with a K. So it's like very metal. I'm sure they'll tell you where what real music is like. It just doesn't give you as broad an idea about Or take BBC America. BBC America is like the FTSE 100, highly curated, top flight shows. No coincidence, these shows do well in households that are dollar denominated, but the FTSE 250 is like an actual channel on the BBC, playing such programs as Pompadour, aimed to reinvent visual comedy for the 21st century. It has no words. It's a mime show, Critically Savaged, or the comedy non-hit Two Pints of Love. 
lager and a packet of crisps and tons of shows about cricket. That's like what you get with a regular actual BBC channel, meaning things aren't going so well over there on an actual BBC channel or with the FTSE 250. Oh, I should also make this note. We will not have a show until Tuesday because we are celebrating Independence Day, which brings me to Independence Day 2 resurgence. First of all, shouldn't that subtitle be part of the Divergence series? I knew Independence Day was coming out, and I was shocked to see that it's already been out. In fact, it's already a flop. Wait, don't they release Independence Day on Independence Day? No, they released it June 24th, which is not Independence Day. Though in Venezuela, it's the Battle of Carabobo Day, which was pretty much the most important battle that did lead to their independence. But there are all these movies that are named after a holiday. Independence Day is independent of that trend, if you will. Coincidental, Independence Day, colon, coincidence. But there was Mother's Day, terrible movie. I assume, I'd never see it. There was Valentine's Day. There was New Year's Eve. You know, 45 people in the cast. We got a name of a movie. We don't possibly need a script. But all of these movies are not released on the day in their title. Like Mother's Day was released on April 29th when in America Mother's Day is May 8th and the movie New Year's Eve that was released on December 9th. And I think I know why. Like if you were advertising this movie and you put an ad in the paper on Independence Day that said Independence Day, I think everyone would say to themselves, oh, look, Independence Day, which reminds me, I'm going to go to a barbecue and play volleyball and not see a movie. In any case, we'll be out until Tuesday for Independence Day, though Britain doesn't care. The FTSE will still be raging. It's not their Independence Day. And therefore, on our Independence Day, I will say thank you, Britain. Without you, they're could be no Independence Day, and there could not be a stock market index that gives you slightly misleading information about where the world economy is headed. Thank you. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, but first, one of our favorite guests, the fantastic Negrito, is back, and he is indeed fantastic. So a couple of years ago, Xavier de Frappelez, really, it was a, quite a long time ago, he came by the office of the gist, he brought his guitar, he played music for us, and I said, that's just about the greatest music we've ever heard. I think it was the first music we ever heard, but it's, <laughs> it, still, it still stands with me as one of the great performances. A little while after that, as the recording great Fantastic Negrito, he won the NPR Tiny Desk contest, he got signed, he had a, put out an album that went to pretty much no Number one on the blues charts. Blues in three different countries. Wow. And now... On iTunes. Amazing. And now Xavier is out with a new album that nods or embraces, really, his roots, The Last Days of Oakland. He got a big boost when he was uh, featured in an episode of Empire. He's done TV theme songs and, you know... As if you look up the old look up the old interview for the entire life story, I want to take it from when we last talked till now. So, how are you, Xavier? Mike, I'm uh, doing well, and it's really good to see you because uh, you were really the first person to take a chance on me and give me uh, some national spotlight, and I 
whenever I see your name or I see the gist, I'm just like, man, that's my guy. <laughs> and you know, what we, you know what we did to keep it pure? We mm. didn't throw in with tons of other recording artists. Like the thing about NPR Tiny Desk, they're mm. wonderful, but it's all different recording artists and you get lost in the shuffle. You're pretty much the house band of the gist at this point. Ah, I love that. <laughs> well, you know, if it's possible one day we should have jam everybody in here yeah. in October when we I think we're doing the States and let's just, let's just tear the place up. Let's do it. So tell me about the last days of Oakland. That's where you're from. Well, you're from a lot of places. Well, I'm from that's... a lot of places, but that's home. Uh, mm-hmm. Oakland, I, since I was 12, that pretty much was home. And as soon as my parents moved us to Oakland, I checked out and uh, didn't come home. Never saw my dad again. He passed away. And so I met back up with my mother when I was a grown man. So it just had such a impact on me that the streets were on fire when I got to Oakland this is I'm very I'm an I'm, I'm an elderly gentleman so uh that was like back in 1980 so do the math they're all like yeah. oh my god he's, that's disgusting he's old <laughs> and it was just like it was the beginning of hip hop the punk rockers were out there the skaters everybody was out there and it MC was MC Hammer MC Hammer wasn't there yet. Well, he was Stanley Burrell. Yeah, he, he was, was. He was a bat boy for the A's. He was yeah. a bat boy for the A's. Yeah, and uh, you know, Dwayne Wiggins was just and, and Raphael. These were guys you just see Tony, Tony, Tony. Or you'd see too short. He was the dude that was uh, selling. His, uh, they didn't call him mixtapes back then, but selling his tapes. You know, and uh, kids were battling and break dancing against each other. Malcolm Spellman was one of them. Yeah, that's that's when we hated each other. Then we didn't talk to each other. He's out there break dancing on the. This is a screenwriter and Empire producer and your producer and your. Well, my I would say because I'm my producer. Yeah, Um, he's my. uh, He's like my DOC to the Dre. You know how DOC is to the Dre. Yeah, he's your Buddha. He's my Buddha. He's my uh, muse. Yeah. He's my partner, mm-hmm. and that's without us having. And he sex was the guy. Each other. And he was, which is you know, <laughs> which is a big uh, a big come down, I guess. But and he was the guy who pointed me to you. But th- when we say from the streets, everyone says not everyone, but a from lot of the people. Streets, man. Oh, that's right. A lot of people say it, but they go home to a fairly consistent bed. Many of them, they live in a place. But when you say you're from the streets, you didn't have too many permanent addresses back then. You were more on the streets than any one place, probably. <laughs> I was on the streets. I mean, I was sleeping in uh, abandoned cars. And how old were you? It's 12. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, sleeping with drug addicts in cars. And I had like this hustle that I could now, I think I've admitted it a couple times now, where I'd, I'd pick like the friendliest, nerdiest kid in junior high, figure out their house schedule, and I'd get a key. I'd, I'd steal the key and I'd make a copy of the key. And so I'd, then I could eat. So I'd go in there, like when their mom went to work and uh, dad was gone for long periods of time, and I'd eat, hang out, watch TV. I'd play Atari. <laughs> and it was, uh, I got to know the dog. The dog was. Um, I don't want to say the dog's name because I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed that I did that. But I was, you know, I was trying to survive. So you were a latchkey kid, only it wasn't your home. <laughs> yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah. I was a latchkey kid. You aspired kid. to be a latchkey yeah, kid. Your I, dream was to have a latchkey. I just yeah. wanted a hug and a sandwich. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm really grateful to them too. So what were the last days of Oakland? They keep We keep saying that these days are the last the days last of Oakland. The last days of Oakland and Brooklyn. Well, I think I came up with that title when I was on tour and I was just going through all these major cities and you could really feel like a shift, like something had happened. Not something was happening, like it had happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, 
say you were from Brooklyn, you may grow up and then not even be able to afford to live in Brooklyn anymore. You had the feeling that everyone, everyone that I met was like working multiple jobs and it seemed like it was normal to them. That was bizarre to me. I was like, this is crazy. So I think when I came up with the title, I thought, okay, listen, it's over. It happened. That Oakland that I, that I, um, grew up in with that hotbed of culture and that produced amazing music and an, an amazing cultural movement. I mean, you know, Free Speech, Black Panthers, East Bay Dragons, even Hell's Angels, Oakland Raiders are wearing black, yeah. Metallica, Santana, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Too Short, E-40. I mean, innovators. That was an amazing time. And so you have to say, in order to move on and to do something else that's great, you have to say, you know what? That happened. That was amazing. Well, now there's a new Oakland. There's new people here. And, uh, you know, let's be the bridge. I like to be the bridge where it's like, I know that old Oakland. I know that old New York. I know that old New Orleans. And you new people? Yeah. You're moving here for a reason. Why? Because it's, it's cool. Someone had to make it cool. It didn't just become cool by itself. And there was a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and even lives lost and sacrifices to make these place vibrate the way that they do that attracts people to them so it's like let's remind those people of that and um let's not price everyone out yeah let's have it so that there's creative and innovative artistic and people that don't make that much money can still afford to live uh in some of these amazing cities and at the same time to be fair to say to the people from the old Oakland like hey wait a minute there's new people here, man. They have something to offer. Mm-hmm. Let's try to. And make, before, right, before make your people happen. were here, some other people were exactly, here. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I'm from Brooklyn, and so we go through these. I'm not, I'm not from Brooklyn, but in the last two or three months, I've become a Brooklyn resident. And so we go through these cycles right. where first it's the Germans, then it's the Irish, then it's the Italians, then it's the blacks. Now it's some polyglot group of mostly whites, but right. some blocks, some original black people, some new right. black people moving in. And we're all supposed to feel feel guilty now but like at what point was it the authentic place I you know where it's you. all it's all it's, new and you got to embrace the change while at the same time the other really important thing you said is like the places that you mentioned they're not just nice places with expensive housing stock they're called cool and they're called cool for a reason right. and the stuff that makes brooklyn and oakland cool is mm. the fact that there are a bunch of poor people there at one point who were just much more interested in their art than their portfolios exactly <laughs> and that is a makes a balance balanced and healthy and frankly happier society you know yeah also you know someone once said this about new orleans you mentioned new orleans that unlike most of america new orleans is a place that values time more than money hmm. and like all these cool places what are artists except people who value time and taking the pleasure in the world more than money whereas most of you know downtown manhattan they value money over time yeah, I mean, I don't th- really think that that's a, really a life when you're working, as I said in the song, Hump Through the Winter, like working three jobs just to pay your bills. What's the point of uh, living, in, in yeah. a sense? Don't go kill yourself, people. I'm not saying that. Like, he said kill yourself. <laughs> no. I've been working so hard trying to get ahead, but they still won't let me live. Two more when I finish. 
And as far as uh, Hump Through the Winter, which is a good song, I love the verb to hump, like to carry things. I don't know if mm. you've ever read The Things They Carried, the Tim O'Brien Vietnam book, and they're talking about humping their packs. I always yeah. say that. Like, I hump my bag over. And that's what I meant. Yeah. People think I'm talking about love making. There are enough fantastic Negrito songs about that. We're okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're talking about, like, getting it done. And I think that that's what uh, this album, to me, is. It's like, hey, man, get it done, you know, take the bullshit, turn it into good shit. It's like the theme at a lot of the concerts. That's what this is about. I know that you were, like a lot of musicians, you were mentored by Prince at one point. Well, I don't know if I'd, I think I was mentored indirectly. I was just some weird uh, black kid in West Oakland and South Berkeley walking around in leopard skin cowboy boots as a kid in orange pants and like <laughs> big ass 10 gallon hats. And then I saw Prince and I'm like, wow, there's another brother and he does kind of an odd thing here. And I thought, I feel it. Okay, cool. I'm going to follow this path. And I think, yeah, in that sense he did because there's a lot of other negative influences you could have, you know, been drawn to. And I was uh, really into him as a young kid. I was. He was like my first... My childhood idol, like, man. But, but then professionally, didn't you do stuff with him? No, what oh, happened yeah. is his managers discovered me and thought I was like a six-foot-tall, lanky prince. Yeah. Because, you know, I played the instruments and produced and all that, but I kept telling them that I wasn't, but, uh, you but, know. But you got a big deal off of that, It was right? a big deal. That was deal. your huge deal. It ruined my life. <laughs> it's like I got a million-dollar deal, and then my creative... Uh, life was over, really, basically. It just Was it living up to the money? I think it's just, I didn't really, I'm not that guy in that corporate artistic environment. I'm the guy that's interested in not making hit records, and that's interested more in like connecting with people through the music, because that's really therapeutic for a uh, recovering narcissist. But I think he was too, especially by the end. Maybe he had his hit records in the past. I don't think he avoided the hits, but I think he was a perfectionist and all about the music. Yeah, I mean, you know, at certain points, I didn't know him personally or anything like that. I know that as a kid, he was a great role model. Money and power—they the root of all evil. People selling people things they can't believe in. You see, I met a girl. She was walking down the street, but I'm not a girl. How many different careers would you say you've had? I'd say I've had uh, three. Yeah. There was, you know, going to L.A., I'm going to dream, and I had a dream, I'm going to get a deal, and I got this huge deal, and then there was failing, so to speak, and getting into the car wreck, the three-week coma, you know, losing my hand, and then that was the second career, which was, you know what, I don't need a major label, I'll just make a bunch of music and... I'll get into films. My first film was Leprechauns in the Hood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think we played the song yeah, from that yeah, last exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and Illegal Nightclubs. I did a lot of those. I love those because you could really book your own bands and you know, nude body paintings and Caribbean food till six in the morning. And it's just truly eclectic, artistic existence in South Central LA. And that was the second career. And then, the, and then quitting... And deciding that I'd never want to play music again, I wanted to have kids. And I wanted to see what it was like to uh, be a husband, maybe let's try that, hey, let's try that, hey, be a dad, geez, I want to be, I want to be called dad by someone. And um, 
maybe go for a second wife. That didn't work out too well, but I tried. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, a farmer, you know, growing tons of weed. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be this other dude, like this cutting edge dude. And man, I'm like, I do things differently. And I got chickens, man, and goats. Where? In Oakland. Yeah. And um, yeah. I wanted to be this, this dude. Then I had this little boy, and I, the story is, you know, the kid looks at me one day, and he can't speak, and I played a G major chord. i never forget that chord, and he freaks out, and then he's, that begins my third career where I was like, well, man, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what to say. You know, what should I play? And I, um, you know, came up with Fantastic Negrito. So this is act number three. So as I listen to the new album and as I listen to the stuff that you've put out in the last couple of years, am I hearing vestiges of the first two paths that you went through? I, who knows? Well, I don't because know. the thing is, like, it seems to me this guy's so talented, he didn't need all that. And maybe it's there in the music, but maybe the arc of the career would be different if you didn't have the deal and even the coma and the accident. And then if you didn't have the quitting music altogether, maybe you learn stuff about the business. I think you're right. And I think if I had made it then, I would have been a mess. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't ready. I wasn't really ready to tell the truth either. You know, that's, they, I don't know if artists or even people realize like how fucking long it takes for you to face the truth in your life. I mean, I'm shocked that it took me this long. It's really kind of my therapy. I don't even know if I'm a musician right now. I'm more like a patient and people in the audience and listeners are my therapists. That's how I feel. I, man, or I'm a mess. You know, I'm a hell to live with. I'm... I'm not this nice, you know, person, you know, that people think I am. (laughs) He's so positive and he's so upbeat. Well, I mean, it's it's because uh, I always say the people are my record company. I love saying that because I really played these tunes on the streets and in train stations and, you know, on NPR and Mike Pesca. This is, I had to get past you guys first. (laughs) Yeah, we're the gatekeepers. Yeah, and, you know, the major labels came. I don't want to say who they were. Yeah, but they came, and this time I was like, "No thanks." I looked at that uh, um, advance. I was like, "Don't need it." I got Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> the last days of Oakland is fantastic. Negrito's new album, Xavier. Thanks a lot for coming by again, Mike. Thanks so much for having me, and you better have me again. Absolutely. Soon. All, All right. right. Well done. Thanks, man. It's all a game to me. I live dangerously. And now the spiel, it's an Antan twig. When I told Afim that today we'd be doing a lobstar of the Antan twig, he looked at me as if I said something like lobstar of the Antan twig. Don't worry, Afim, they're not real words. I mean, they are real words, but I've appropriated and crafted them. Antan twig is a three-week period. Lobstar are the awards we give for the great listeners, interactors, or feedback givers. Callie Kimball pointed out to me that I said Bernie Sanders had not released his taxes. This was a problem. I did say that. There is no way that if you listen to the show, you wouldn't come away with this impression. Yet I knew in my head he had. It's because the way I talk, sometimes I have 
past tense problems. So I'm saying something like Bernie Sanders is there and he's saying you, Hillary Clinton, have to release your speeches. And yet he still hasn't released his taxes. See, I'm kind of speaking in the present tense because at the time he was speaking in the present tense. But weeks later, he released them. It still did undercut his argument. And by the way, he's still running for president. Did you know that about Bernie Sanders? The dream is still alive. Seth Christenfeld wrote to me, as a number of people did, I said something slightly wrong about the Ghostbusters. And there are things you could say things hugely wrong about. No one notices. You say something slightly wrong about the Ghostbusters. They're on you. That's okay. The real Ghostbusters did not have a gorilla on their team. Easy, Sliber. It's not that serious. Oh, But Seth goes on. It was, in fact, part of the reason that the animated series based on the 1984 film had to be called The Real Ghostbusters. The gorilla, whose name was Tracy, was a cast member of a different animated series simply called Ghostbusters and produced by Filmation. Filmation was basing it on a 1975 live-action TV series titled Ghostbusters with a space, which starred Larry Storch, Forrest Tucker, and a man in a gorilla suit. Wow, that's, that's what sunk F Troop, no man in a gorilla suit. Anyway, Seth goes on, among certain nursery school-age children of the 80s, the Filmation series was referred to as the fake Ghostbusters, although not without a good deal of fondness. Zing, Seth, zing. Okie dokie. Doug Hannah notes, Mike, your Bernie imitation is just your Mike Francesa imitation minus Syosset. That's a good tweet. I would say plus a Seder dinner and 15 years. But yeah, you nailed me on that one. Do I want tap or sparkling water? Who wants sparkling? I'll tell you who. Millionaires and billionaires. In other gorilla-related tweets, Kilroy's Carnival. I asked her for her real name. That's her Twitter feed. Let's see if she's gotten back to me. The answer is... Anne Carrigan, outed, outed right here. She said, see, I tweeted, I know McGilla Gorilla had a speech impediment and a vest, but did he have any actual distinguishing personality traits? Actually, I should have said he didn't usually wear a vest. It was more suspenders and a bow tie. Hey, what is this? A pet shop or a hot dog stand? It is true. He seemed more like a costume and a weird way of talking than anything discernible about his personality. And Anne, she said to me, I've spent more mental energy than expected on McGilla Gorilla. I found this interpretation. Sad now. Let me read you from some of this. This is called, this is so good, American Animated Cartoons of the Vietnam Era, a study of social commentary. The same year Hanna-Barbera made one last-ditch effort to milk the Yogi Bear formula, the studio offered the McGilla Gorilla Show concerning a primate confined to a pet store. I'm going to stop. I'm going to go outside the book and say, maybe they were milking the Yogi Bear formula because he also had some sort of evening wear suspenders and was an example of large, tottering megafauna. But Yogi Bear absolutely had a discernible personality. Anyway, we go on. As in Yogi Bear, a white man, the storekeeper, takes care of the title character. Unlike Yogi, Megillah does not resort to any deceptive means to leave the shop. Rather, various white customers purchase him and take him to live with them. However, the gorilla never fits in with his new owners, and at the end of each episode is back in the pet store. Thus, the series reinforces the idea of non-whites having their place by showing how attempts at social integration fail. 
The theme dovetails with the reluctance on the part of many U.S. citizens to embrace the integrationist goals of the civil rights movement. A common complaint from state and federal government officials was that the demonstrators wanted too much too soon. They reasoned that the country still needed time to honor the rights guaranteed to blacks by the 14th and 15th Amendments, although each document neared a century in age. And he goes on and on. Wow. Wow. You read civil rights into McGillagorilla. Gorilla. Wow, I guess you're much more advanced than I. I would never compare the victims of the civil rights movement to a gorilla, but I guess that's the sort of thing that might give you tenure. Anyway, thank you for alerting me to that interpretation, Anne. So Anne's going to be our runner-up lobstar of the Antan Twig, but our lobstar, the best person who interacted me, I can't tell you his name. I know it. He asked to keep the name out of it because he shed some light on something I was talking about. Norman Seabrook, who ran before he was arrested, ran the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association in New York. And the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association used to take out weird ads during Mets games. And I mocked it. But on the way to mockery, I kind of wondered why and how this was a good purchase. And it was explained to me by this anonymous person who is pretty deep inside the process. This isn't speculation. He sent me an email, convinced me that he knew what was going on, but he points out that with every sponsorship that, say, a radio company sells. It comes with things like tickets and World Series tickets if the team makes it and all-star game tickets and luxury boxes, right? All this extra stuff. So if you are running, say, a nonprofit or if you are the head of a union, you can't get paid. But what you can do is experience the goodies that come with taking out an ad. So it is this man's opinion that the now indicted Norman Seabrook did not care so much about spreading the good word of the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association, didn't care so much to claim that the lead was now being protected by Hansel Robles, just like the jail officers protect you, our private citizens. What they cared about were the luxury boxes and the merchandise that could get spread around within the circles of the union. An interesting insight and some numbers and figures that he supplied back me up. So thank you for alerting me to this. You have made me smarter and therefore I have made you, sir, madam, or possibly preternaturally worldly toddler, I have made you the lobstar of this Antan twig. That's it for today's show. Afim Shapiro produced the show in Mary Wilson's stead. How he got the keys to the stead, I did not ask. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and he is here to say he's proud to be an American. God bless Andy Bowers, chief content officer of Panaplay. The gist, you know... If love in the red, white, and blue is wrong, well then, mister, I guess I'm wrong. Because when I see those three colors, I can only think of the flag of Australia, Cambodia, Chile, the Cook Islands, Costa Rica, Croatia, Cuba, Czech Republic, Dominican Republic, Faroe Islands, France, Haiti, Iceland, North Korea, Laos, Liberia, Luxembourg, Malaysia, Nepal, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Panama, Paraguay, Philippines, Puerto Rico, Russia, Samoa, Slovakia, Slovenia, Taiwan, Thailand, United Kingdom, and the USA. Peru, Peru, Peru. Thanks for listening.